This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border: Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. This week we will be discussing the foreign policy performance of the Narendra Modi government. Last month the Narendra Modi government completed 4 years in office. So this is probably the opportune time to take a look at the failures, successes and future trajectories of the Indian foreign policy. Um the Modi supporters in India say that uh, Mr Modi's foreign policy has been a spectacular one. His critics and detractors say that it has been a complete disaster where lies the truth so today we will be discussing india's foreign policy with uh, one of india's sharpest uh, uh, minds on foreign policy uh, mr manish tiwari mr manish tiwari is a congress uh, a member of parliament from ludhiana he has been a former union minister and he is a senior distinguished fellow at the atlantic council in the united states mr manish tiwari welcome to the national security conversation thank you for having me uh, mr tiwari you said recently that the nda government's foreign policy has been a singularly unmitigated disaster i wonder what makes you say that uh, if you look at the performance of the modi government um, india gained membership of the mtcr australia group the wasanar arrangement um, all of this under the modi government uh, the visibility of a rising india has become far more prominent during the modi years um, um, the exchange of on cloves between india and bangladesh the land boundary agreement so there has been uh, several there have been several spectacular successes under the modi government in fact uh, as as many people say he's been to thir- he's been on 36 foreign trips um, and visiting 54 countries in the last 4 years that itself is a um, uh, major achievement so why do you say that it has been a singularly unmitigated disaster well for the simple reason that uh, prime minister narendra modi uh, possibly because uh, he was chief minister of gujarat for a very long time uh, wasn't really well acquainted in the nuances of india's foreign policy and so therefore on the first principles of foreign policy which is strategic autonomy which is india's exceptionalism that we engage with the world on our own terms and number 3 finishing the power dynamic the the ability to be able to finish the power dynamic that is maintain an equilibrium between the great powers be it the united states be it russia be it china or be it the european union uh, the modi government tripped and so therefore the initial euphoria has now given way to a complete sense of foreboding and that is reflective not only in which india's neighbors are cocking a snook at us but the swing from the sublime to the ridiculous that uh, you spent for years debunking these principles and finally you know at the end of four years when you speak at the shangrila dialogue in singapore you really come back to those first principles and realize that you have uh, blundered and squandered away those four years and that's why we say that prime minister modi's foreign policy unfortunately has been 
an unmitigated disaster. So you're saying that there have been strategic blunders in Mr. Modi's foreign policy. Would you at least accept that there have been some tactical gains in the last four years? Well, of course, in the sense that uh, in the past four years, you know, the, uh, the, the, the instances MCTR. which you mentioned, MCTR or the Vasnar group, I guess, you know, there is a, there is a certain continuity in foreign policy. So therefore, if you were to rewind back to the 11th and 13th of May 1998, when Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee actually went and conducted uh, India's second set of nuclear tests, uh, to the conversations between Strobe Talbot and Jaswan Singh, which paved the way for a better understanding between India and the United States of America. The next steps in strategic partnership, which was conceptualized while the Vajpayee government was still in office. And then the follow-up by Dr. Manmohan Singh's government in terms of the defense framework arrangement with the U.S., then the uh, Indo-U.S. Right. civil nuclear engagement. So therefore, if you see, and then the waiver from the NSG in 2008, which allowed the U.S. to go ahead with that uh, civil nuclear uh, engagement with India. So the uh, membership of the MCTR or the Vasna group are a logical continuity of a process which was set in motion 20 years back and it has gone across administrations and dispensations. So therefore, yes, I concede that uh, I agree that there have been tactical gains, but on the big picture, the, 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 the larger or the long view from Delhi, this government, unfortunately, has blundered and blundered very badly. Mr. Tiwari, you mentioned a foreign policy consensus in India. There has traditionally been a certain amount of foreign policy consensus on crucial key issues. That seems to have disappeared. So I have two questions. One, is a foreign policy consensus a good idea in a democratic country? And two, has the foreign policy consensus disappeared because of a certain politicization of India's foreign policy, that the use of foreign policy for domestic purposes? Would you say that Narendra Modi government has used India's foreign policy for domestic political purposes, which the earlier governments may not have used? I think you've raised a very important and a very conceptual question. Is a national consensus important, imperative or even desirable on questions of foreign policy? Uh, and I think uh, possibly no, that uh, if uh, you have a vigorous debate, uh, even domestically on the various options which are there as India engages the world, it is not really a bad thing. But if the consensus breaks down uh, more on petty political considerations or partisan considerations rather than a genuine disagreement about the policy options which are available to India, then it is a tragedy. And this is what happened not with the Narendra Modi government. It happened with the BJP in, the, in 2004 when they decided to oppose and very vociferously oppose the Indo-US civil nuclear engagement despite having put the next steps in strategic partnership into right. place. And, you know, what happened subsequently was a logical follow-up of that. So that consensus, you know, because of parties and reasons, was broken by the BJP and unfortunately very senior stalwarts of the BJP. So I, I, I think the inflection point really came in 2005. And since then, We've not had genuine policy disagreements. We've had a very bitter partisan rancor 
on uh, national security and foreign policy issues. And of course, you know, there has been then the use of, uh, of symbolism, uh, especially, you know, Pakistan being a proxy for domestic political considerations uh, for the right wing for a very, very long time. All right, let me ask you a different question about the politicization of India's foreign policy. Um, it is it is clearly um, understandable and logical that in a democracy, foreign policy is debated by just about everybody. Um, so politicization of foreign policy or democratization of foreign policy from that perspective, perspective is not a bad idea. However, in the recent past that we've seen instances where, um, say, the surgical strikes, the way that has been politicized for local political local elections domestic elections or the way um, the prime minister goes abroad and talks about domestic politics do you think that kind of politicization is negative for the say the sort of consensus that should exist in the country on foreign policy or do you think that there should be absolutely no politicization at all how do you how do you look at the question of politicization of foreign policy well it's petty you see uh, we've had disagreements in the past between uh, principal players in the political firmament. But invariably, people would leave their differences at the shore of India. For example, if you recall, Prime Minister Narsim Rao uh, requested Prime, Min Prime Minister Vajpayee when he was leader of the opposition to actually lead the Indian delegation to the United Nations Human Rights Commission. So therefore, there was a certain sense of responsibility that our domestic differences should be left at the shores of India. Prime Minister Narendra Modi broke that when he went abroad, started using diaspora platforms in order to criticize uh, his opponent, something which was completely unnecessary and uncalled for. And it was obvious that he was playing to domestic audiences. Number two, on surgical strikes, you're absolutely correct. You know, the fact that uh, border actions have been uh, unfortunately conducted by both sides since 1998 is a reality. And uh, there has been this uh, very ghastly syndrome of beheadings which have been uh, going on. And so therefore, this tit for tat uh, by the border action teams is a, is a, is a, is a reality on uh, the line of control and the international border. But for the first time, you know, you saw this overt politicization after the Uri attack, whereby the Director General of Military Operations, the spokesperson of the Ministry of External Affairs, you know, briefed in the backdrop of uh, Indian national flags, you know, ostensibly designed to send out a clear message of hyper-nationalism. So it was obvious that these surgical strikes or whatever happened at that point in time, because there is a general sense of disbelief with regard to the efficacy of those operations which were carried out, were not so much to change the behavior of the deep state in Pakistan or the Pakistani establishment as, you know, pandering to the crowds back home, whom you had promised this, you know, muscular 56-inch uh, diplomacy. So I think that's where, uh, when you start using... Uh, foreign policy engagements or even strategic or tactical operations as political props, you end up uh, completely losing your way. And that's reflective in India's Pakistan policy. You know, from inviting Nawaz Sharif, 
you know, to, uh, to, to switching off the foreign secretary level talks in the August of 2014 because the Pakistani foreign secretary insisted on meeting the Hurriyat, which had been happening for, you know, 15 or 20 years going back into the but past. But you have to give credit to Mr. Modi that he did reach out to Pakistan. He did give Pakistan an opportunity to negotiate with India on several questions. But it is, as you said, the deep state that may have done what it did and therefore things went completely astray. So it is not as if he did not want to have peace with Pakistan. He did give an opportunity. Well, in the sense, uh, it is important to think through these issues. It is important then to understand that there are spoilers and you will have to stay the course, notwithstanding uh, the spoilers at play. So, for example, when the Prime Minister decided to drop in at Mr. Nawaz Sharif's granddaughter's wedding, uh, it was a symbolic gesture and uh, it was a gesture of goodwill. But unfortunately, between India and Pakistan, you know, all this at the prime ministerial level needs to be calibrated with a lot of homework. Mm -hmm. And so you dropped in uh, at Nawaz Sharif's estate in Rai Wind and you got Pathan Court in return. So, so therefore, the moment you got Pathan Court in return, you still thought you would be able to ride it out. You invited the uh, JIT, but when the JIT went and uh, said in Pakistan, which consisted of ISI officers, that uh, this was a false flag operation conducted by the Indian state, that was the end of your engagement. So, I think what is important when you are dealing with complex and vexed questions of history, where mythology and fact intermingle and there is this narrative between the two states, which is extremely poisonous, a narrative of partition, four wars, state sponsorship of terrorism, they say we interfere in Balochistan, etc., etc. At the apex level, you do not do foreign policy on the fly. But from a long view point of view, the term that you used, it's probably a wrong thing to say that uh, the lack of strategic thinking has come into being only in the last four years. There has been a consistent argument made by academics and researchers and even um, intellectuals in India that uh, the Indian um, thinking on strategic issues or national security issues a little, is, is a little weak. We haven't, for example, we don't have uh, national security doctrines, we don't have any national security strategy, uh, we, the, the politicians are unwilling to talk to the public on, 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 on national security issues. Why don't we have uh, a national security strategy or a doctrine clearly identifying the red lines or the do's and don'ts, what India wishes to achieve in the next 20 years, where India should be as a great power in the next 50 years. So why don't we have all of those things? So, it's not, so this, this reacting to developments around the region and around the world in an ad hoc manner comes from that lack of a strategic vision. Would you not agree with that? I completely and absolutely agree with you. And I think that there is a need uh, for politicians and strategic thinkers to rise above partisan and ideological considerations. And when I say ideological, it is also because strategic thinkers come from certain classical schools of strategic thought. So you need to sort of liberate yourself from all that and arrive at a certain consensus on foreign policy. And that exercise has to be led by the National Security Advisor, the Minister of External Affairs and the Chairperson of the Standing Committee of External Affairs in Parliament. You know, these are the three uh, eminences who are really charged 
with the responsibility of building a consensus about what should be the long view from India. And therefore, in the absence of that long view, which generates at least a minimum consensus on what your imperatives in the neighborhood are, what is your, uh, what should be your relationship with the great powers, you know, China, Japan, Russia, United States of America, uh, the European Union, which is a consuming market of 550 million people. You know, there has to be a long view. Of course, there will be adjustments which will have to be made, you know, as you go along. And the absence of that kind of a conversation, I think going back 25 or 30 years, is really hindering the kind of responses which the Indian state comes up with. It is one thing for the governments to do that. Uh, when you, when, when a political party comes to power, it probably does not have the time to do that. Why don't parties, when they are not in government, such as yourself, the Congress party, why shouldn't the Congress party come out with a certain document, a national security document, and say that this is our vision of uh, India's future, this is our vision of national security and national strategy, and then sort of follow up some of these things when you are in power. So it's it's difficult for you to do that when you, when you sort of come to office. You see, there is a danger, you know, it's a good idea, but there is an inherent danger in that kind of an approach. The inherent danger is when you articulate a, do a document, it becomes a dogma. And then you get bound by it and you have to defend the positions that you, are, you, uh, that you have taken in that, on, on that particular piece of paper. I think it is far more important that you get the principal stakeholders in India's uh, political and strategic establishment around a table, irrespective of whosoever is in government. And you see, there are certain people who have uh, a national point of view, irrespective of whatever be they, their strength in parliament or otherwise. For example, the Communist Parties of India. The Communist Parties of India have been the most proactive insofar as uh, the international uh, firmament is concerned or the international arena is concerned. So therefore, when you get people around a table and have a conversation and out of that conversation emerges a national security strategy, I think that would be far more sustainable rather than presenting your own draft and then, you know, wanting people to either agree or disagree with it because that, that, that basic paper which then becomes the base of discussions, will itself get bitterly contested. All right, let me ask you a little bit about defense reforms. One of the persistent themes in India's national security discussions is the absence of adequate defense reforms. The political class usually has no time to discuss about reforms, higher defense management, etc., etc. The, uh, the armed forces are usually kept away from the higher defense management discussions. The civil servants are ill-trained to, to sort of deal with this. So you have a situation where you don't have a certain uh, amount of required and necessary defense reforms in the country. I mean, this, I'm saying this... These I'm raising these issues in the context of the recent reports concerning deficits in arms and ammunition, etc. The CAG report uh, talked about it, so did the uh, Parliamentary Standing Committee on Defense. So all of this, I mean, you can talk about X amount of weapons are necessary, X amount of ammunition is necessary, but I think what it, what it's, what it at the end of the day leads to is about the question of defense reforms. Do you have a cohesive setup and framework in the country where all the stakeholders are brought together and they are able to take decisions in a, in a sort of coherent manner? So let me answer this question in two parts. First of all, there is a need to have 
not only a conversation, but you need to start implementing higher defense reforms. And already you have three excellent documents uh, which are uh, available or which are available to every government. So you have the Kargil Review Committee, you have the group of ministers which followed up on the Kargil Review Committee, then you have the Arun Singh Committee report, and then you have the Naresh Chandra Committee report. So therefore, there is no absence, there is no, no dearth of material available. It is just a question of follow-up. Why is the follow-up not taking place? Because, you know, defense reforms have to be personality driven by the prime minister or by the defense minister. If you just make an expression of intent and leave it to the bureaucracies, the MOD bureaucracy does not want the armed services to be uh, integrated with the uh, MOD. The uh, the, the bureaucracy of the services has their own imperatives of perpetuating the status quo. So therefore, there will be will have to be a concerted effort to break down those barriers and see that that integration takes place and jointness actually becomes a reality. Unfortunately, when you have episodes like uh, the one pertaining to General V.K. Singh and the ostensible or the alleged movement uh, of certain uh, certain forces belonging to the first strike corps. I think it 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 strikes at the at the at the heart of trust, which is which is imperative in civil military relations when you have to implement higher defense reforms and actually uh, bring all, all this to fruition. So therefore, when you have a single episode of this sort and given the kind of neighborhood that we have in South Asia, the, uh, the hawks or the, the proponents of status quo, their hands get absolutely strengthened and therefore nothing happens. And insofar as uh, ammunition deficits are concerned, I recall when the vice chief had come before the standing committee in 2012, this is six years back. He had exactly said the same thing what the vice chief said this year when he came before the standing committee. So therefore, this has been an endemic problem which is not getting addressed and it is going to create a, a huge uh, a, a, a huge national security situation one of these days. For example, if you look at the Mountain Strike Corps. Now, you've budgeted 67,000-odd crores for the Mountain Strike Corps. But if you talk to any strategic expert, he would tell you that the money which is required is far, far more. You know, building cantonments, building the infrastructure to look after the human resources, the schools, uh, the, 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 the hospitals and various other infrastructure which goes with it. So, therefore, there is a need you know, uh, top downwards that number one, have a national security strategy. Number two, have national security doctrines. Number three, have higher defense reforms. And then only as a country would you really be equipped to deal with the kind of strategic channel ch challenges, especially, you know, the assertiveness of China, especially in India's uh, eminent maritime domain. So, as, as a former union minister and as a senior congressman, you are saying that it is time that India looked seriously at some of the recommendations given by these committees, be it the group of ministers, the Kargil Committee report, the Narayanandra Committee, and implement those for our own, our own good. Oh, absolutely. You see, otherwise, otherwise you will have situations 
whereby a little Maldives can tell you that please don't interfere into our internal affairs. Okay, let's talk about the neighborhood policy. Uh, what, what is happening with India's neighborhood policy? Are we losing the neighborhood? Are we being isolated? What, 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 what is wrong with Narendra Modi's neighborhood policy? The or is it, a, or is, it a, is it not a new thing? It's an old thing. The reality, Happy Moon, is that unfortunately we've lost the neighborhood. <clears throat> Pakistan we talked about where we swung from the sublime to the ridiculous, not knowing whether we are coming or going. In the case of Nepal, for completely uh, extraneous reasons, you blockaded Nepal because this yeah. government wanted certain things to be included in the Nepalese constitution, which the Nepalese uh, lawmakers correctly resisted. And then you found a fig leaf in order to carry out uh, a blockade, which has pushed Nepal, you know, completely off the cliff. And now you have the Nepalese prime minister in China next week. And there's talk about all kinds of agreements which are being signed. As a result of your ability, inability to finish the global power dynamic, you've lost Maldives to the, China, to the Chinese. You know, the one thing which was not commented upon, which went unnoticed, was the visit of General Bajwa, uh, the Pakistani army chief, to Maldives immediately in the aftermath of uh, when tensions between the President Nasheed and his political opponents were at a height. And now you see what is happening with Seychelles. That Seychelles has said that you cannot have a military base on Assumption Island. So should so, India have intervened in Maldives? Because yes. you written that insofar as Maldives is concerned, the Chinese are building military bases that would interdict, interdict the sea lanes of commerce from Hormuz to the Malacca. That's right. So our, our national security is at stake here. So should India have intervened in, in Maldives when, when the uh, former president asked India to? Well, we that. have intervened in the past. You see, at a point in but time... But that was a different context. No, no, at a point in time when we were engaged in Sri Lanka and uh, President Gayoom reached out to us for help, we actually sent our paratroopers, restored the government of Abdul Gayoom. So it is not that we've uh, not intervened in the past. You know, we intervened in Sikkim. You know, we've intervened uh, in Bangladesh, you know, dismembered Pakistan into two. So therefore, there has been a litany of India's assertiveness uh, in the neighborhood. Yes, things have changed post-1998 when South Asia became nuclearized. So you're saying this time India should have intervened in Maldives. When you say intervened, are you talking about a military intervention? Are you talking about diplomatic intervention? What kind of intervention well, are you talking see, about? The, 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 when you use the word intervention, the rest are all tools which are at your disposal. Diplomatic, military, uh, and other uh, various tools which are there. You could have always calibrated it. But unfortunately, India decided to keep absolutely quiet. And so therefore, you've sent out a signal to the entire neighborhood that you can get away by cocking a snook at India. See, Sri Lanka. Today, uh, not only Humban Tota, but the kind of Chinese investments which are going into Sri Lanka, the entire waterfront of Colombo uh, is virtually uh, a, a, a Chinese colony. Uh, there is serious uh, talk or serious chatter about the fact that even in the Bangladesh elections, you may have intervention and support being provided to anti-India elements uh, by the Chinese. So therefore, the fact is that there is a 600-pound gorilla in the room called China. How do you, how do we deal with that gorilla? You know, um, what should happen in India's response to CPEC and BRI? You, for example, you've commented recently that BRI 
is the grandest failure of Indian foreign policy. But there is also the objection regarding say, sovereignty, India's sovereignty with regard to the Chinese uh, CPEC passing through POK, etc. But you also, in, in a different context, in the, I think, Indian Express, you wrote um, in May this year, in May last year, actually. Um, we need to remember that China is not alone in this regard. Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan had long crossed India's sovereignty red lines when they signed the Quadrilateral Traffic and Transit Agreement uh, in 1995. So, what, what is your argument? Are you saying that India should have signed up to BRI, CPEC, or are you saying that we shouldn't have? And when you say that Obor is India's grandest foreign policy failure, what is your argument? So, therefore, the argument is as follows, that first of all, I don't think that we should have a conceptual difficulty with regional or transcontinental uh, connectivity uh, initiatives. Right. Number two, uh, the problem with CPEC or that part of CPEC which passes through the POK is a historical problem because, you know, uh, the Pakistanis conducted the uh, constructed or the Pakistanis and the Chinese constructed the Korakurum Highway exactly on the same salient, right. right? So therefore, when the highway was constructed way back in 1953 and when we took it up with the, with the, the, the Chinese, they said that, you know, this is without prejudice to whatever is the final settlement between India and Pakistan. So therefore, that same position could have been maintained. However, if let's suppose you moved from that position and there is a surge of hyper-nationalism on all sides, you could have easily said that, all right, we have difficulty with the Western uh, part of the BRI, but, you know, we are not averse to actually looking at the eastern part of the uh, BRI, which starts from Shui. So therefore, you know, uh, in, in Myanmar, so therefore, there, you know, it could have been a far, far more nuanced position. And number three, what is the alternative that we've come out with? Yeah. You know, the fact is that... Say you do to something, it's one Yeah, but, but you know, in the sense that why have we as a country not been able to articulate uh, a different template in terms of regional connectivity? It uh, essentially couldn't have been, uh, you know, doesn't have to be physical connectivity. It could even be digital connectivity. You know, there could be various variants of that. But the fact is that rather than some fuzzy ideas of connecting Dhaka to Karachi, etc., we not really come out with a cohesive plan which would put India in the forefront of this regional connectivity game, at least in the, in the, in the context of South Asia. Okay, let's continue with the China question a little more. The, the Chinese envoy recently proposed an India-Pakistan-China trilateral. The MEA has said that uh, uh, this is his personal opinion and there is not too much appetite in India to go for a um, China-India-Pakistan trilateral. Why not? Um, in the recent past, whenever people have proposed India-Pakistan nuclear talks, the Indians have said that, listen, there is this uh, elephant in the room, which is China. Therefore, we need to bring China on board if we have to have discussions with Pakistan. You um, tweeted on June 12 that uh, Trump, Kim, meet any hope for India-Pakistan-China nuclear trilateral. I think that's that's a very um, encouraging position that you're taking. Can you sort of nuance? Um, so therefore, uh, there are two aspects of it. One are the historical disputes between India and Pakistan. And those disputes essentially are Siachin, Sir Creek, 
you know, uh, Kashmir, cross-border terrorism, uh, water, you know, those, all those which are a part of the composite dialogue. I don't think that there is any room for any third-party intervention or third-party mediation insofar as this uh, set of other of, of issues are concerned because I think we uh, there is a consensus that the, the, this is bound by the bilateralism which came into play post the Simla agreement of 1972. But however, the nuclear question is completely in a different basket altogether. Because if you are going to look at a denuclearized South Asia in the future, that denuclearized South Asia cannot happen without a conversation with the Chinese. So I think there is a need to, uh, to, to draw a distinction between these two issues and say that whatever are the traditional uh, problems or issues with, with Pakistan, there is no room for any third party intervention or third party mediation. But yes, if there is going to be a new initiative which looks at the uh, the, the question of the larger denuclearization of Asia because, you know, the Chinese then will come around and say that, oh, we have concerns about the Russians and then we have concerns even about the North Koreans because, you know, the China unfortunately has cultivated these two rogues on its eastern and western border and at times the chickens come home to roost. So in that larger conversation of denuclearizing uh, Asia, uh, I think, I, I think you know, you cannot really ignore or avoid China in that conversation. Well, last couple of questions. One is about um, Kulbushan Yadav. Um, assuming that he's an Indian agent, I don't know uh, whether he is or he's not. Um, or let's say, forget about Kulbushan Yadav. Should India and Pakistan have an agreement on dealing with the agents working in each other's country, if there are at all any? Like during the Cold War years, the, the Cold War rivals did exchange uh, um, agents, um, under, um, um, spies, as it were. Should India and Pakistan have that rather than hanging them, killing them, sending them, jail, sending them to jail for 30 years. So you raise a very, very interesting question. And this was the subject of my private member's bill on intelligence agencies, which unfortunately lapsed when I went from parliament to government. The reality is that whenever you have uh, an Indian national or the national of any other country, operating in a third country, you know, he's obviously in the pale of illegality. But unfortunately, uh, in India's case, they do not ha even have legal cover at home. So therefore, if let's suppose there would be a legal architecture uh, governing your intelligence services, at least you would be able to say that what this gentleman was doing or not doing in a foreign land had domestic legal sanction and it would make for a far, far more compelling and arguable case in the international fora, you know, rather than the guy becoming a persona non grata and completely at the mercy of the state uh, where he is, uh, where 
is uh, you know held or he's been arrested so coming to kulbushan jadhav that irrespective of uh, whether kulbushan jadhav was working for us or he was uh, a kind of a loan shark operator i think it's a test case and you know uh, the pakistanis would actually send a very positive signal uh, if as a goodwill gesture they would return uh, kulbushan jadhav to us yes and there needs to be a protocol because you are absolutely correct the issue of uh, 54 indian pows who ostensibly lang been languishing in pakistani jail since 1971 still continues to hang in 2012 there were reports that one of them uh, you know was in a jail in muscat and subsequently you know the omani's authorities denied it when the government of india took it up so therefore obviously you know there are uh all these issues and i think from a humanitarian point of view on uh, on people detained on fishermen etc we need to have a far far more robust and a far far more sensitive and a humanitarian regime than we already have in place my last question and it has two parts one i one one first part is on the sark um was it a mistake that uh, india committed in not attending the sark um, uh, summit um sark is probably one of those um uh, last india centric institutions um say along with the nam for example um so was it a mistake um um not attending the sark summit one to how do we bring back the estranged neighbors that we have you said that india has already lost the neighborhood what should india do in order to bring them back so this is a two fold question so sir therefore on sark i think uh any attempt or any uh any uh any move that we make which undermines sark actually is detrimental to our interests and the reason why i say that is because south asia is the least connected region of the world we have the biggest challenges of poverty of malnutrition of unemployment you know and other human developmental uh, indices so therefore it is in south asia's interest that given the kind of intellectual capital which is available that we cooperate with each other you know we have a seamless south asia from myanmar all the way to the borders of afghanistan with iran and anything which furthers that cause should really be supported and the reality is that sark is being held hostage to the india pakistan estrangement if we are able to sort out the india pakistan estrangement i don't think there is any other problem with sark really sark cannot go forward and attain its full potential till the time issues between india and pakistan are not resolved and number 2 uh, well i think it is going to require a lot of hard work because uh, what has happened is that nothing remains in the vacuum and we created a vacuum and the chinese have stepped into that vacuum and so therefore it would require some serious conversations with the chinese on one hand it would require certain very serious conversations with our neighbors on the other hand and we will have to make it clear both strategically uh, diplomatically and even militarily by uh, developing a very robust uh, blue water navy that we do consider you know this part of south asia to be our eminent domain and we would take all the requisite steps necessary to ensure that this eminent domain remains the way it was 
between 1947 and 2014. So I think this is going to be the biggest challenge which India's foreign policy and uh, strategic pr practitioners are going to face over the next one decade. Mr. Diwari, wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.